At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed. Have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters 5 through 7 to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. Thank you for declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, who has reached down out of his perfect holiness, sending his son into our broken world to redeem us to himself. He didn't have to do that. God wasn't lonely. He wasn't missing something. He was full and complete and enjoying full relationship with the triune nature of who he is. But he shared that with us, and, and he knew that sin had interrupted our awareness of who he was and our ability to relate personally with him. So he solved our greatest dilemma by sending his son to give his life on the cross for us. Man, that's the good news. That's the good news that will change everything in your world. And thank you for declaring it. And I hope that that's not the last time this week that you declare that good news. That you talk about it with your kids, over the dinner table, and with friends. And uh, you, you share with one another different aspects of all that goes into that truth. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting, abundant life. Amen. Well, and I, and I wanted to, to thank you for all of you who are beginning to pray and seek God's heart on, on finishing our, our project here. As we announced last Sunday, uh, we have several things that aren't in our budget to, to finish this, some things that will really help us. For instance, the stage lighting we have wasn't really designed for uh, the environment we have here. This was designed to go alongside of the, the stuff that was at the school, um, well, we're not at the school with their stage lighting now, and so we need to figure out how we can do that here. Uh, the kids' ministry furnishings, uh, that's not included in our, our build-out here. The outdoor signage that we know we need to do isn't included in that. And so uh, we're asking God's people to begin to pray, God, would you have me be a part of supplying these needs of ministry? And if so, God, what do you want to do? How, will you, how do you want to provide for me so that I can be, have that privilege of, of providing for this. And so we've asked you to begin praying that. As God shares and prompts your heart, we're asking that you use these My Gift cards to let us know what God's putting on your heart as you make a commitment and how God will provide for you to give over these next three to six months. That will help us know what we can do. Uh, so if you use these and then put them in our giving boxes or you can stick them in the mail using the envelope, uh, that has the Algonac facilities campaign, the addresses on there. Uh, you could send them in. And our hope is, our plan is that on October 3rd, we'll have a reveal of what God's people have sensed from God and how he wants to provide through us for that. We've also mentioned to you that there's a very generous family that kind of started this second part of our campaign uh, by saying we feel God prompting our heart to give, but we want to invite others to give along with us. Uh, so they've committed to matching our gifts, uh, dollar for dollar, up to $50,000. 
so every commitment that you make, every dollar that you give will be, will be doubled over these next three to six months. So it's pretty exciting to think of how God's going to meet our needs. And that's kind of the thing that's happened in my mind is even when we started this, I thought, oh, God, I don't think our small campus can tackle such a thing. But we put it out there for you, and, and God worked in our hearts and provided way beyond what we anticipated. Uh, and this is a, such, a, such an opportunity. I, I don't think I've told you this. But here a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I received a voicemail um, on our office phone. It, someone that didn't give a name, they, they called to say, I just want to take time to thank you, Woodside Church, for how you are caring for our community. Things are so much better now because your ministry has started. Then they said, and I also want to thank you for your renovating the, the, the old IGA. It's been vacant for so long and kind of become kind of an eyesore. And we know that it's going to be a beautiful thing because Woodside is a part of that. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Again, I don't know who that is. And I, I know that's not, that's not the end of the story. It's just one of the little steps where we see God is not simply creating something. This isn't for us. This is for the glory of God and reaching this greater downriver area for the cause of Christ. And God's beginning that work. There's evidence of it here. There's evidence of it out there. But I believe that that's just the, it's just kind of the, the, the small shower that goes ahead of the deluge of, of God's movement that's going to happen. So I, I can't wait to be a part of that. So excited to see what God's going to do. Well, I love the passage of scripture that we're diving into over these next several weeks. And I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as we continue our series today, Romans chapter 6. And I'd love to just begin with prayer and committing our hearts to him as he speaks to us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts. Thank you for working all week long in us, Lord, as we seek to walk with you and allow your spirit to transform us step by step, glory to glory. Lord, transform us into the image of Jesus. And I, I hope that we look more like your son than we did last week when we came in. But Lord, I know that there's many struggles we've had too. And I thank you for giving us your son, the advocate that stands between us and the Father say, no, they're mine, they're redeemed, they're saved, they're, they're justified. Thank you for him. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that transforms us. Thank you for how he speaks to us. And even in this moment now, Lord, as we've been enjoying his presence with us, as we've sung together, now we ask that he would speak to us, take your word, filter through us, Lord, and penetrate our hearts so that we truly take another step in our journey of faith. So be with us today as we, as we press into your word and as we learn it and apply it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in Romans chapter 5 that we looked at the last two weeks, we, we saw this very important truth that all of our series is built upon, and that is this. When we place our faith in the work of Jesus, a work of justification takes place. 
that God in his grace declares us as righteous before God. He, he, he gives a judicial statement that says, as you place your faith in my work of redemption, I am declaring you right with me, right with God. And I trust that's happened to you, that there's been a time in your life when you have given your life to Jesus, when you've placed your faith in his work. If so, the scripture says that you have been made right with God. But in chapter 6, Paul begins to deal with a potential abuse of power or position that would deface this gift of grace. Our newspapers are filled, tragically, with plenty of examples of an abuse of power. Right? There's, there's news articles this week on... Um, court proceedings against a government official who, who took bribes and incentives in order to make certain decisions. That's frustrating, isn't it? In the news are athletic directors and physicians who abuse their position of influence and intelligence to perform unspeakable acts towards others. D doctors and teachers and coaches and church leaders tragically have taken their position of power and influence and have abused it towards other people. What, what's that do to your spirit? Doesn't that just I don't know, I, I, I get angry, I get so burdened and frustrated and concerned for my own family because these atrocities should just never happen. When these people were placed in such a privileged position and then they use them for their own means. It's a tragic thing. Well, in Romans chapter 6, Paul presses into this idea that you and I, as, as we have been justified by faith, maybe have a thought that we can take that position and that standing with God and use it for our own ambition. Let's read this verse. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. This is the truth that this next question kind of bounces from the truth the, the powerful truth is this where where sin increased grace abounded all the more think about that where sin increased grace abounded all the more in other words there's not one person that's ever walked the face of this earth that could say i've sinned too much to be redeemed by god you can't say that because the reality is you can't out-sin the grace of God. All right? Isn't that, isn't that awesome? You can't out-sin God's grace and forgiveness because the more and the deeper and the uglier your sin, the greater and the more powerful and the more glorious God's grace. It always supersedes our rebellion. 
That's the power of the justification, that gracious gift of God to make us right with him. You can't out-sin his grace. Well, if that's true, Paul says, then maybe some of you are asking this question. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, the chapter begins, it says, well, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, if grace is good and the more sin brings more grace, then should we keep on sinning so we get more grace? You see the logic there? If we can't out-sin God's grace, then why are we worried about our sin? Because his grace will cover it, right? So what's the problem? Why don't I just live the way I want to and trust in his grace to cover up all those sins that I continue to commit? Does Christ's sin-defeating death free us to sin? However much we want. Similar to my family that goes to my in-law's who live in Pennsylvania. All right, well, here's, here's something our family has discovered. Nanny's house is loaded with food. And I don't know how it happens, but every time we've gone, the multiple pantries are fully stocked with mega boxes of our favorite cereals and multiple bags of our favorite chips and bulk size cartons of those snacks that we love and a plethora of beverages that we can enjoy literally a dozen flavors of ice cream that's the experience of nannies how it happens i don't know but they have costco and sam's and bj's there too so i'm sure that's happened which has caused our kids to have this this constant flowing pathway to the pantry while we're there, right? They just go and they're hungry. Oh, I'm, I think I might be hungry so I can go eat. I think I might be thirsty so they can just, just indulge. Such a dramatic difference from home, right? If you like this, that your house is, if, if, you're, if you're like hankering for a mid-meal snack, the response is, well, maybe you should have eaten more when we sat down for dinner. <laughs> if you're thirsty, you probably should drink water. It's probably better for you. Right? But, but when, there's an, when there's an abundance, there's this thought of, well, then we can indulge, right? Well, Paul addresses that and says, is, is life with Jesus kind of like life with Nanny? Well, in some ways, yes. But what about that thought? When, there's, when his pantry is full of grace, then isn't there freedom them to indulge in his grace by sinning where and whenever you want knowing that his forgiveness will just cover it and you'll you'll be fine so he asked that question what shall we say then are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound to answer that as he gives a statement by no means all right, that should be the end of the argument. But he presses further to that because he knows our flesh contended not take a simple answer. So he helps us understand, no, there is true reason why that's not how we live with God. He turns to this important experience in the Christian life and helps us see that our life as a follower of Jesus 
must match our baptism into Jesus. That our life as a follower of Jesus should match our baptism into Jesus. Let's, let's look at the text and see how he presents this. First of all, what does our baptism display? And when we think of baptism, some of you are familiar with that concept. Maybe it's new to some who are just starting to check out this thing of Jesus. Maybe you've seen pictures. Maybe you've heard of it. Baptism is it's kind of an initiation, right, to the, to, to the movement of Jesus, to, his, to his, his, his mission. Jesus initiated the church. When he went back to the Father after he died and rose again, he commissioned his followers to go into the world and baptize other followers or more followers. Whoever, whoever places their faith in Jesus. He said to the apostles, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, their, their justification by faith brings them to God, but it also brings them into the family of God called the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And baptism is that expression to the world and to God that you're in, you're his, that you're following in the ways of Jesus. It's a declaration that says, I want to be known as a follower of Jesus. It's the outward action loaded with meaning. And if our lives match the baptism, we will not be abusing this gift and position of grace. Number one, Romans 6 verse 2 declares that we have died to sin. Look at the verse with me. How can we, it says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says, if we've died to sin, how can we keep living in it? And the answer, of course, is, well, we can't. So Paul uses this, this phrase where he says, you have died to sin. This is the first time in Paul's writings that he uses that little phrase of dying to sin or of being dead to sin. And he explains it with this picture of baptism. He says, when you trust in Christ, united with him, you aren't just united in a general sense. But we join with him in his death. It wasn't, it wasn't just Jesus dying on the cross, and, but he was dying as a representation. That's what Bill talked about last Sunday, is that Jesus, as he gave his life on the cross, he was representing us. So when you're baptized, it's not just saying that this is what Jesus did for me, that he died and was buried. But when you're baptized and you're placed under the water, you are saying not just he was baptized for me, you are saying I was, I was buried with him. You're not just saying that Jesus was buried for me, you're saying that I was buried with him. 
that in this mysterious sense, even though time has passed between your baptism and his burial, you're saying that Jesus was representing me. I'm united in a spiritual sense with him when he died and was buried for me. That you died to sin like Jesus died to sin when he was crucified on that cross. Now, every once in a while, in Hollywood, pictures something pretty powerful. I don't know if you've ever watched the Godfather movies, but there's a scene in the second one that I think just powerfully, I like to keep it in my mind as kind of an illustration of my relationship with sin. That the crime boss was having this conversation with his brother who had just failed an assignment. Because of his getting nervous and squeamish over this, this horrendous assignment that he was given, he chose to disobey his, uh, his instructions. He didn't do the crime that he was supposed to do. right? So he betrayed the family, put them all at risk, put the whole mob at risk by failing to do what he was instructed to do. And there's this conversation between the crime boss and his younger brother. It goes something like this. He says, Fredo, you're nothing to me now. You're not my brother. You're not my friend. I don't want to know you. I don't want to see you. I don't want you coming to my house. And when you go see our mother, I want to know a day ahead of time so I don't have to see you. You are dead to me. That is the meaning of our baptism. When you are placed under the waters of baptism, your statement is the statement that Jesus made when he says, it is finished, and he gives up the ghost. Your statement is sin, you're not my friend, you're not my brother. I don't want to know you, I don't want to see you, I don't want you near my house. You're dead to me. That's the testimony of our baptism. Tragically, I think some of us get this thought in our minds that baptism was when I simply say, I want the world to know that I'm following Jesus, which it does. But it also is a connection between you and Jesus when he died to sin. It is your statement that says, sin, I don't want to know you. I don't want you as my friend. You have nothing good for me. And so I am declaring when I'm going under the waters of baptism that I am not living according to that desire anymore. It is dead to me. Paul says, so if you've been baptized into Jesus, you can't go on sinning and say, well, the grace of God will cover it all. You can't, you can't just say, I'm just going to do what I want and people are going to have to deal with it because God's forgiven me. They're going to have to too. That just doesn't equate because that's not what your baptism said. Your baptism said, sin, I'm dead to you. You are not my friend. 
So our baptism demonstrates our death to sin. Secondly, our baptism signifies that we rose from the dead, that we rose to new life. Romans 6.4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been baptized with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When you were baptized and placed under the water, that wasn't it thankfully, right? That wasn't it. No, you were brought up out of the water, just like Jesus rose from the dead out of that borrowed tomb that you sang about today. You were brought up out of the water now to be united with him in a new resurrected life. Your life now changes from what it once was, according to whatever you wanted to do, but you left that in the tank. You left that in the grave, and now you are like Lazarus coming out, raised, like Jesus coming out of the grave, glorified, united in his resurrection. There's, there's, in these verses, there's a past, or a, there's a present and a future aspect to this, it says, we might walk in newness of life. That walking is your living, right? That, that's how you journey now, from now on. That you're walking differently. Like now. That your life is now characterized by the evidence of the Spirit. Like love and grace and kindness and compassion and patience. That's your new walk now. That's who you are. That's your, your new journey. This resurrected life shows up in my marriage and how I speak and treat my spouse. It shows up in how I respond to my parents. It shows up at work. My resurrected life is, is with me 24-7. It's not something I turn on when it's time to get, to get ready for church. It's not something turn off when I'm on my way home. This is, this is how I live now because I'm united in the newness of life as Jesus was raised from the dead. There's a future aspect to this. He describes this certainly being united with him. So this is a future sense that we walk in newness of life, but we shall be united with him in a resurrection of life. So there's a, there's a future aspect to this, that when our life here on earth is over, and, or maybe when he comes and he grabs us to spend every, eternity with him. Whatever it is, when our life on this earth is over, then it's the resurrected life we can look forward to. So our future experience is living according to that. That when we are raised up out of the waters and our arms of triumph extend to the heavens and we say yes i'm clean i'm washed i've declared that i'm united with him in his resurrection we're saying i'm now living for that day when i see him face to face 
That that's my ambition. That when I'm there with him, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. That I'm not going to live my life laying up for myself treasures on earth. That's not my ambition. I'm going to lay up for myself treasures in heaven. Colossians chapter 3 is a powerful verse. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. And put on then, as God's children, compassion, kindness, humility, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, as God has forgiven you. You see, our salvation and our justification isn't just about being forgiven. It's about being transformed. It's about living differently now that that we are his. It's about Christ living in us. So our, our lives should match our baptism. So Paul is assuming here, remember this, as he's writing this part of his letter to the church in Rome, he's assuming that they've experienced baptism. Because that's that's just part of the Christian life. That if you've been justified by faith, that's what you do to declare to the world and to the Father that you're identifying with Him, that your faith is in Him. He, he so strongly assumes it that he can write Romans chapter 6 and say, okay, so you can't abuse God's grace and just be in this position of being forgiven without living a changed life. You can't do that because remember your baptism? When you were buried, you united in his death. You said, death, you are not my friend. I don't want to see you. I don't want you at my house. You're dead to me. You came up out of the waters of baptism to say, the way Jesus lived, that's how I want to live. The way he forgave those that spoke against him, even on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't have no clue what they're doing. The way Jesus said, this is life in the kingdom, when, when someone smites, smites you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek. When he says, you've heard that you shouldn't uh, commit adultery, I'm telling you that it's your thought life that matters. That kind of living, when I came up out of the water, that's what I pursued. So I guess a question Have you done what's just assumed to be a part of the Christian life? Or have we bought into this thought that, well, baptism's just kind of an optional thing? Now, I know, baptism doesn't save us. I hope you know that. We are justified by our faith. Romans deeply describes that. Abraham, it wasn't his baptism. It wasn't his circumcision. It wasn't his abiding by the law. There wasn't even the law. When Abraham was declared as righteous, but he was declared righteous because of his faith, and that same salvation is for us. We are redeemed, we are justified when we place our faith in him. But his expectation 
is for us to declare that to the world, to the church, to the Father, that we are His through our baptism. So maybe for some today, maybe this assumption is for you. It's time to follow through on what the scripture assumes is true of you. That you've declared your faith by being baptized. For the rest of us, maybe it's time to bring that image of our baptism back into our mind and say, is that how I'm living? For me, I, I, I was about 11 years old when I was baptized. That's a long time ago. But I distinctly remember standing in that tank at that church in downtown Kalamazoo when I was placed under the water and I was brought up out of the water. And did I understand everything? No. Did I understand what I understand now? No. But I understood that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, rose again, and I needed my sins forgiven. And I wanted to follow Jesus. And even today, the Spirit of God increases my understanding of the significance of that event. That from now on, I need to live more and more faithfully with sin. You have no part of me. In Jesus, my life is fully devoted to you. Father, forgive us for even becoming maybe a little bit flippant in our life of following you, Lord. Forgive us for, I guess, abusing our position of justification, of not thinking that our sin is a big deal. Forgive us for taking advantage of the grace but we do rejoice that still that Jesus is our intercessor. Even covering this sin. I thank you that Jesus, as John wrote to the church, that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank you. For the work of Jesus who stands between us and the Father and communicating our right standing with him. But Lord, we want to live more faithfully to our identification of who we are, more faithful to our identity. Lord, may our baptism, however long ago it was, or maybe how soon it may be, I pray that our baptism would be how we live. Dead to sin, living confidently as we follow in the works and ways and words of Jesus. This is our desire, Lord. We want to rise from the dead and live according to our resurrection that we experienced as we proclaimed through our baptism. This is our desire, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.